Hi everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Tusi Jarasadi. And I'm Ryan Lenny. And today we're sitting down with Tom Leinbarger. Tom received joint undergraduate degrees in management engineering from Claremont McKenna College and mechanical engineering from Stanford University. He later returned to Stanford to earn a master's degree in manufacturing systems from the School of Engineering and a master's degree from the Graduate School of Business. Tom was appointed as executive chairman of Cummins Incorporated in August 2022. In addition to his work at Cummins, he is actively involved with several local and global organizations. He has been a member of the board of directors of Harley-Davidson since 2008, and he is a member of the Business Roundtable. In 2021, he was appointed chair of the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership and co-chair of the Global Hydrogen Council. He previously served as chair of the U.S.-China Business Council from 2020 to 2022. Tom, thank you for joining us. It's a privilege to speak with you today. Well, thank you so much for having us. My privilege. Well, just starting to think of you coming back to campus and thinking of your upbringing, you're a Californian, you grew up here, and especially when thinking of growing up in the community, what aspects of your community influence you the most, especially when looking at climate change issues that are central to California? How did growing up in this state affect your upbringing and your view and your academic career? Well, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. And when I was young, the barrier was very different than it is today. Uh, it wasn't called Silicon Valley then. It was a lot of fruit orchards. I mean, there was there were still burgeoning communities by the time I was uh, growing up there because I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. But it wasn't at all like it is today. Um, and there's a lot of starter family homes and uh, you know people that just had regular jobs and things like that. And there, there weren't nearly as many rich uh, entrepreneurs and things like that. And also the the, the towns were much smaller. They just they just had not had not grown to the level it is today, and my parents were both from uh, families that where they left before high school was finished. So they had rough family lives growing up. They met at San Jose State. Uh, they bo- were both in university there, and they married very young. I was born in my when my mom was twenty, and they uh, and they and my dad was twenty one. So it, they were very young, uh, too young. Um, and uh, about six years later, they were divorced. So my mom had my brother and I, and um, and then she had no money. She had no job and no money. So we grew up. We grew up in Menlo Park, which I think be difficult to find a house for less than a million dollars in Menlo Park. Where we lived in a very simple house. Uh, we were on state assistance at that time, and my mom did everything. My mom w- worked, went to school for to get a, a degree so that she could get a better job. Uh, she made sure we had childcare when she was gone. She made sure we, you know, dressed right and everything. She made everything come together, and it was a hard go. Um, and she was grumpy uh, at night, especially when we didn't do our chores. Uh, it, you know, it was a hard go. And so my brother and I, you know, I think my mom was a hero, basically helping us grow up. But we also recognized that we had to contribute some. And, you know, that was our, we weren't exactly like everyone else. But I would say that she made it seem like we had just as much chance as everybody else. And that was the biggest influence on me growing up. I think I, I owe pretty much everything that's happened to me since that time to the fact that I was put up on a level playing field by my mom working so hard to make it feel like that for us, even though clearly we were not at the time. And, you know, I, you asked about sustainability, and I, I do think that Growing up in California, I had pretty big connection to the outdoors. It's a beautiful place, obviously. In those days, you know, the with fruit orchards and mountains, 
they were accessible to me. And although I was not a skilled skier or anything else, I just I appreciated the beauty that was California. And since that time, as I've thought about my my ability to impact climate change, I thought I, I, this is what I love about you know our life and our world is is the outdoors. And so I I feel an obligation to do what I can do to protect it. Yeah. So as as I understand it, you're a CMC graduate of '86, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what brought you here to CMC and what it's like being back after so many years. I, I would acknowledge that my college selection process was not the most uh, diligent and organized. I um, I did really want to go to college, and I had uh, my a principal at my high school who encouraged me to apply to colleges that weren't just nearby. And I applied to Yale and Brown and did not be, it was not accepted. He was a graduate of Yale and was very disappointed by this. Not, not in my, but he, he'd hoped they'd accept me. But then, uh, and I had, had applied to, um, to go to UC California Davis. And then I got a letter from David Wells, who was the basketball coach at those days at Claremont, who said, we'd love for you to come play basketball. And I was a good basketball player. But, but not a great one. Like I, I, I played center. I'm six foot three. I played center, and our high school was okay. Like we finished in the middle of a pack of a mediocre league in in California. So, but it was incredibly flattering. Like that they wanted me to play basketball, um, and it worked. Like I said, oh wow, they give me a scholarship. And the fact that that was a scholarship of one thousand dollars against a tuition of over ten thousand dollars didn't really strike me at the time. But it was. And it was a one-year scholarship, by the way. So it was gone the next year. <laughs> I had to fill it in. So it, I, I don't know if I would say it was a marketing trick, but it was definitely a hook, and it worked. And I would tell you that um, I don't regret a minute of it. I did have some financial aid challenges after I got to school that I had to resolve, but um, I loved the people I met here. I, I went skiing just two weeks ago with two of my roommates from Claremont, um, so, you know, with our lifelong friends, we still do things together. We had a suite in Wolford Hall and that we all lived in. And, you know, I've got pictures that I'll show tonight about that. It's really, it was a, a very, very meaningful time from a relationship building and friendship. The other thing that really, that I remember most about being here was growing up. I, I remember lots of classes and things like that. And that's interesting. But what I did was begin to have some self-awareness and try to find myself a little bit. And maybe some of your listeners might think about that too, that you know, it, college is that time where you get to think of yourself maybe not as just a teenager who's, who's just reacting to everything going around you, but a little bit like, what do I want in my life? And I remember that very well and being a meaningful time for me. On this idea of growing up, I think a big part of that is kind of thinking about your future and your career. And you yourself, you started as an investment analyst, but then you kind of took a step back and you shifted to coming. So kind of thinking about how did you have the courage to take the leap to shift and try something new? And what advice would you give to students that are trying to figure out their pathway? Yeah, it was an interesting uh, shift. I, I went, in, as you said, I became a financial analyst right out of school. And the reason is I was an engineering graduate, as, as you noted. And I had worked on so many problem sets at Stanford that I just couldn't go and do more problem sets. So I interviewed with several engineering companies, Garrett Turbines and others, and it looked like it was just going to be a continuation of mechanical engineering problem sets. And I thought, I just can't do it. So I was looking for something else. And um, Rockstar and Sports Hero were out. So I started looking for things that, that what I could actually do. And I met a graduate from Stanford who was an engineer and went to the financial industry. 
And he said, oh, no, we love engineers in the financial industry because they're quantitative and they, they don't mind working really long hours. So <laughs> he was very honest about that. And so I did join uh, Prudential and work in financial analysis. And I, I would say the financial industry, for one thing, it, it, it built a lot of confidence. I, I did think I was decent at the, at the work. Um, it paid a lot. And so, but it wasn't, at one level, it wasn't satisfying to me. And, and that level was, I felt like I was moving money around the economy, but I wasn't really creating anything myself. And I thought I could do more by leading a group or leading a business and trying to create more value and let the financiers give me money. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to figure out how to shift. That's why I went back to Stanford and got my master's degree in engineering as well as business so that I could begin to get into business, running businesses, designing products, doing, you know, creating what I considered to be value. Um, I decided that I wanted to work for a company that if, that made a product, like a physical product. It's probably my mechanical engineering background. Like if you dropped on your foot, it would hurt. So that, you know, software companies were out, Cisco was out. And that's what brought me to the the, the engine business. And, and I really did want to contribute to building more jobs in American manufacturing. I, I decided that manufacturing jobs were both jobs that gave people satisfaction, paid a decent amount, you know, made households uh, more successful. So I wanted to try, to try to build American manufacturing, which at the time, there was all this press about how American manufacturing was dead and there would be no more manufacturing here. So I was kind of reacting to that a little bit. So anyway, I, it was a bit of a savior complex maybe, but I really thought I could help. and. I haven't looked back since. I just loved it. I loved every day of it. And, you know, the, the work that I did in my first summer working on the manufacturing line with, I remember everyone I work with, I, I went back and visited, all of them have retired by now, but many of them only, it was a couple of them only retired a few years ago, and I'd always go back and talk to them. It was a very meaningful experience for me. So now looking back at the long career you've had with Cummins, what challenges would you say you faced in trying to live that, live that life of purpose? Yeah, I, I think um, there, there's, there's a few keys, I think, to trying to live a life of purpose in, especially if you need to also earn a living. And that, because I do think there's this idea that I can either live a life of purpose or I can earn a living, and they sort of go against each other. I think my, what I would say is I, I don't think that's true. I think there are some things you can do to ensure that you can do both. And the first thing is you need to find an organization that shares your values, that the values that they, it's kind of a how question more than a what question. I know a lot of people, when they look for jobs, they think about working for the company that makes something that they use. They like it. Like I wanted to work for Trek Bicycle because I love Trek Bicycles. That would have been a terrible decision. I mean, I can just buy a Trek Bicycle. I mean, so I think it's not a good decision criteria. I like their products, therefore I'll work there. Or I, their reputation's really exciting. People think it's a good company, so I'll work there. I, a much better criteria is, is this a company that will invest in me, that creates the kind of environment that I want to work in, and that I think I can live, I can work and live the way I want to live, work and live here, meaning they value things that I value. And not just in their words. Almost every company has values that they write down, 
but how do they manage? How do they live? How do they work? And sometimes that's hard to discover from the outside. As you guess, you look at the glass and steel walls, it's not obvious. But once you're inside, you can kind of see how do managers behave? How do people get measured? What do they do? And what I found at Cummins was, and the reason I thrived there is because they had values like integrity and diversity and inclusion and you know, investing in people's careers that really mattered to me. So I could do what I wanted to do the way that I could, I could work there and do it a way that I thought was a good way to do it. You know, I wanted to create jobs for people. I wanted to pay people a fair wage. They weren't trying to cheap out on people's wages. So there was, there was a set of values that matched mine. Second thing I'd say is that you have to be a, a, a person who continues to self-develop, grow in your own self-awareness, become more authentic in, in, in your work. Me, what I mean by authentic is you need to bring together who you are, who you want to be, and how others see you into one person. Because if you're trying to be a person at work and a person at home, not only is it exhausting, but it's impossible to do. And you just seem inauthentic to everybody and you feel nervous. You're always like, well, what if they find out that I'm not this and I'm not that? As soon as you're able to just be yourself, when you're scared, you're able to say you're scared. When you're excited, you can say you're excited. When you're angry, you can say you're angry. As soon as you can just be the person you are, you relax, you become authentic. Everybody wants to work for a real human anyway, and it just all gets easier. So I would say that's number two, self-reflection, self-awareness, emotional intelligence, becoming authentic. These journeys are the most important journeys I took to make you know, be able to live a life of purpose at my work. Third thing I'd say is I think it's very difficult um, f to feel like you're living a life of purpose if you're not connected to your community, and at least for me. I just think work isn't enough. Even work and family aren't enough. To have a connection to the place you are uh, sometimes I can be with nature and hiking, but I think a lot of times it has to be like you are contributing in a way that's meaningful to you. I sometimes say like when you give to give to to in a, you work in a volunteer organization or charity, you you get more out of it than the people you're giving things to because giving things to people enriches your life. It's that simple. Giving of yourself. So there has to be a way to do that at your work. If there isn't, you're in the wrong place. You need to be able to balance community and, and work. And the last thing I'd say is that um, making sure that you can live the priorities in your life. So for me, you know, raising my two daughters was really important to me. I love them you know, more than anything. And if I couldn't be the dad I wanted to be, I wasn't going to be happy. It wasn't going to feel purposeful to me. So I had to be able to prioritize and organize my life and work in a way that I could feel proud as a dad as well as feel proud as a CEO. And I think that those are the four tenets to me to living a life of purpose. I think you can do it in any field there is. But you have to be a little tough about finding your space and living the life, working the way you need to work. And that sometimes means you need to quit a job to find the right one. A lot of what you mentioned is value, right, and a purpose. And I do think a lot of people, and you mentioned your daughters, and I do think a lot of people, our generation, have sustainability as a value that they really do think is important. So what have you, what do you think of the kind of general push for sustainability we've seen in the past few years? And how can businesses use it to their advantage? And as you said, put into their management structures that sustainability is like a value of theirs. Well, first, I would say that, you know, one of the things that makes me 
optimistic about our future in some very, very difficult circumstances with regard to climate change is how many people of your generation are feel like this is their most important thing to do. That is ne necessary, by the way, and I think you know creates optimism in an otherwise pretty pessimistic situation. I also think, though, that every business leader, and I've written about this and spoken about this, every business leader has a duty, I think, to begin to think about how they're going to remove carbon from their products and their services. And if they're not, I just don't think they have, they don't have an ethical ground to stand on. I told, I gave a talk in front of a big group of business leaders in Indiana, and I said, like, you know, my, I hope, hopefully one day I'm going to be a grandfather, and I don't, what am I going to tell them? If if we because we will inevitably have climate problems, what am I going to tell them about what I did? I made a lot of money. I saved the company some profits. That's what I'm going to tell them, and, and they're going to say what? I I think you have to be part of the solution. I just don't understand how anybody can say differently. Now again, what that means for each company is going to be different, but everybody's got to push forward. And and I think as you were asking there. Almost always there's an intersection between trying to find a sustainable solution and your business. It may not be obvious at first glance. It may take more work. In our case, you know, we, we're, Cummins, the company that I led for 15 years, was, was, um, is a diesel engine manufacturer. So one of the largest diesel, you know, ca carbon contributors there is in transportation anyway. And so to think about how that could be good for us was, took some work. But we launched an entire strategy to produce zero, uh, zero carbon engines, both battery electric and fuel cell electric. I spent the last 10 years of my career building that strategy. And right now, Cummins is much better positioned for the future. Our stock has doubled. Our, our opportunities for employment for people are more because we did that. And so I, I think it can be. It's not maybe obvious at first glance, but it can be. And I just think everyone's just got to do everything they can to, to, to be focused on that because there, there isn't another earth to grab onto, just this one. Yeah, so looking a bit more at Cummins specifically and the approach to sustainability that you were talking about, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that fuel cell technology and, you know, given the difficulties with hydrogen, with storing it and transporting it, what role do you see fuel cell technology serving in the future of transportation and clean energy in the U.S.? Great. I'll talk about that. Just one background piece. So the strategy we developed at Cummins was called Destination Zero, which, which basically has three big tenets. One is... Uh, that we have to get to zero. There is not another path. It has to be zero carbon. And we lined up our goals with Paris Climate and said, okay, so if, if we're this percentage of, of carbon in the atmosphere now and we need to be at these levels in the future, how much reduction is that for us and how are we going to do that? So we just lined them up mathematically and got going. So in other words, clarity of the goal. We have a super clear goal. It's not confusing how to get there, challenging, but we know what the goal is. Second thing is we said, in order to get to the goal, we're going to have to start decreasing now. And that means you can't wait for batteries and fuel cells. So we started to work on internal combustion engines to say we sell 99% of what we sell today is internal combustion. How can we reduce fuel use? How can we improve fuel economy? How can we start to use alternate fuels, which take no new infrastructure? Just start now. And it looks like we can reduce by as much as 30% with current products. And you might say, well, we need to get to zero, 30%. But, and by the way, it's not the least bit politically sexy to say, well, we've got new diesel engines that are 30%. No one cares about that politically. But actually, that's worth a lot more than fuel cells in 20 years. 
because you've already put too much carbon in the atmosphere. So we said, we're going to move now. Second thing we said, well, first was the goal. Second was move now. Third was we got to have zero products, zero, zero carbon products. So we started investing in batteries, fuel cells, hydrogen engines, because we don't know which one's going to work. We actually don't know which technologies are going to be the best. We have a range of applications, which may be different. And infrastructure means everything. If hydrogen is available and cheap, it might be the best solution. If you can charge easily, that batteries might be the best solution. I don't really know which we're going to do. Right now in Southern California, which is one of the most, the strongest promoters of zero carbon technologies, if I ha locate a fleet of battery electric trucks here, I can't charge them. The Southern California Edison will not give me enough energy to charge them. And they said they'd be able to provide us energy in five years. You're like, well, that seems like a long time then. So, you know, five years is long. So what, and that's, that's the place that wants to do it the most. So where's the grid going to be? And by the way, that won't be all renewable energy either. So there's just so much work to do that my argument is you need to invest in all of them. I don't really know what role hydrogen is going to play. My feeling is it's, it's, you know, based on the technology development that I see and the, the advantages of each is high energy, high energy content applications are maybe going to be served better by hydrogen than batteries. The reason is batteries have all the energy in the battery, which makes it big and heavy. Hydrogen, you can, you can refuel. You can use molecules to refuel. So if there's lots of energy to be used, hydrogen may be a better solution. For most smaller energy applications, short distances, stop and go, battery looks like a big winner. So we're investing in both to say, well, we'll see. Mine trucks may be hydrogen. Buses will almost certainly be batteries. And then all everything in between is yet to be seen. But we are competing. In Cummins, we put all three technologies in and said, compete. Internal combustion engines, fuel cells, batteries, go for it. Let's see what wins. And I, my view is all three will win somewhere. The question is, you know, which applications? Yeah, so kind of going forward in a different strand with that idea of competition, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a bit about your role on the U.S.-China Business Council and, you know, looking at more developing countries and the role that fossil fuels are playing in their competition, in their growth, and what that means for places like the U.S. that are trying to push for these international climate standards. Yeah, I, it is, as you know, a, a, this conflict between the developing world that feels like the, the big countries and economic advanced countries already put carbon in the atmosphere in gigantic amounts and then now they're saying, well, you guys need to clean up. Everyone needs to clean up. They're kind of saying unfair because fossil fuels are cheaper for the most part. And they have more development to do. Their per capita income is lower. And, they, and they're like, well, you guys should pay us then to do it. Or at least you should give us more leeway. Um, and I think that argument is persuasive. The challenge is which countries fall in which bucket. So I think most people would agree that sub-Saharan Africa probably needs some help. The question is, what about China? So China, the Chinese government would argue that you, per capita income in China is still significantly below the U.S. and we're a developing country. The U.S. and most of Europe would say, mm, you're a pretty powerful economy. You're at, at, at least on your way to being developed and probably all the way. So I'm not sure that you deserve uh, uh, pass or subsidies or longer time. That is a very, very contentious subject. And, and I, 
I worry that the argument about who gets what prevents all from moving forward. I've heard many times in, in the halls of the U.S. government that, wait, we can't give up our fossil fuels because look how many coal plants China's still building. They are right at one level that carbon from anywhere is still carbon. But on the other hand, uh, the, the two counter arguments I make is if we don't move, who's going to? And, and really, in the end, if, if we tell our grandkids the reason we burnt up the planet is because it wasn't fair, I'm not sure that's going to be persuasive. I still think, fair or not, please don't burn up the planet. Second thing I'd say is that when we get ahead on technologies that are related to decarbonization, we will be able to sell those technologies to everybody, including the Chinese. I know that because we did that exact thing with, with criteria pollutants in diesel engines. So the reason Cummins is alive today is because after a very competitive uh, generation in the 90s, we invented a whole bunch of, of criteria pollutant reducing technologies that went on diesel engines so that there's less knocks and socks and acid rain because the Clean Air Act. And the result was we were able to sell all those technologies globally and create a lot of jobs in the U.S. for, for people and you know, kept the company from dying. And I think the same can be true for carbon technologies. So my, my advocacy in the U.S. is stop complaining about China and just move, right? And then they will be dragged forward when they get forward. And, and I really believe that to be true. Again, I, I don't always win that argument because people have different points of view, but that's my argument to, to people that discuss this point. Well, that's unfortunately all the time we had today. But thank you, Tom, so much for joining us today and for your insights today. It was absolutely my pleasure. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.